Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, good morning, and welcome to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and glad you're with us. Well, we are in the dead of winter, and so you deserve this. Today is National Margarita Day. Known to be the most common tequila-based cocktail served in the United States, the margarita is a cocktail that consists of tequila, triple sec, and lime or lemon juice. That will warm you up for sure. Ted Cruz, that is not for you, though. You need to be back in Texas where you belong, as you even admitted yourself. Uh, but for the rest of us folks, if you're stored up here in the middle of winter, take a break, take a little tropical uh, vacation. Uh, you deserve it, and it'll get you through the winter. Well, joining me to discuss all things winter, about how we're going to get through this, what's going on with our economy. It seems that we're in, uh, we've got a lot of challenges on the horizon in terms of more government spending. Uh, but Joe Lavorn is here to walk us through all of this. He's former White House Chief, Chief Economist for former President Trump. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Carrie. So let's talk about what we can expect from the Democrats here. So they've got a $1.9 trillion stimulus plan. And supposedly, it's supposed to be for coronavirus. But when you dig into the numbers, there's a lot of stuff in there that has seems to be nothing to do with coronavirus. What's your read on this? If we look, Carrie, at what the uh, uh, Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget has said, and this is a bipartisan group, uh, people like Leon Panetta, among others, on the Democrat side, that watchdog, if you will, uh, as of February 2nd, it's a little bit old, said that roughly $1.3 of monies related to coronavirus has yet to be spent. So that is a sizable portion of money that's not yet been allocated. And we're talking about another nearly $2 trillion in monies that are spent, which, by the way, Carrie, is not part of the Congressional Budget Office estimate of this year's deficit, uh, which, as a share of GDP, is close to 11%. That's on top of a 15% deficit to GDP last year. With the $1.9 trillion of extra spending, that would lift potentially the deficit to 18% a GDP, depending on what assumptions you make for how the economy performs. So you are talking extraordinary, unprecedented, unprecedented amounts of money being spent. By the way, with an economy that right now has a lot of forward momentum, in fact, the widely followed Atlanta Fed GDP now forecast has current quarter GDP at nearly 10%. So this economy has a lot of momentum, and there is some concern in the market that we might just be overdoing it a little bit. Mm, just a little bit. Uh, you're being so generous there, Joe. Uh, but this, so this money that's not been spent, you said $1.3 Is this PPP money? What's this money? What was it allocated for? And why is it just sitting there? And why would you pass $1.9 trillion more on top of this? The, uh, the, uh, the breakdown, I'm not sure on all the exact details. Some of it might be PPP, but also a lot of it's money that's still going to schools states, testing, things of that sort. So it's a broad array of different uh, programs that, that were instituted under 
the various uh, bills, the CARES Act, one, two, et cetera. Don't forget, this also includes the 900 billion, the bipartisan bill that we passed uh, just, just back in December, 900 billion. So a lot of it is that, that is yet to be dispersed. And hopefully it will be. Uh, but the point is we're doing a lot. And um, look, right now the economy is, in, I would argue, is in pretty good shape. It's really more a function of getting the vaccines out, which they are. We've had nearly 58 million vaccinations. That's extraordinary compared to around 28 million cases. So we've basically doubled the amount of vaccines relative to cases. And the economy's got a lot of good momentum. We need to reopen, reopen safely. That really, I would argue, Carrie, be the best stimulus is, is, is reopening. I think a lot of people would agree with you there, for sure. But the um, I, I want to talk about a specific provision, and that is in the bill, they want to, the Democrats, want to repeal a cap on the state and local tax deduction. That's the SALT. So the SALT, as they say, S-A-L-T, like table salt. Um, they want to repeal this, and a lot of people say that if you get rid of the cap, you're basically going to be giving money to rich people, because only the top 5% of Americans deduct more than $10,000 for their property taxes. Do you think this is a giveaway to the rich? I don't think it's a giveaway to the rich, but, but more importantly, Carrie, I don't really believe that's going to be part of this bill, the SALT. I, I, just, don't, I just don't see it as being a part of the a package that ultimately likely will be passed. And, uh, and that's from somebody who does live in what's called a, a rich district, if you will, uh, because the taxes, the property taxes uh, in, in New York, especially up in Westchester, are, are quite high. So I, I don't see it. I don't see it happening um, in, in large part because I don't see why the Republicans would, would go along with that. And it, it does cost a significant amount of money. So I'm not sure you'd have an offset if you gave salt back. So I don't I mean, maybe it comes somewhere down the line, but I don't see it in the short term. Mm. Well, I don't know if they, they really care about getting Republicans at this point, if they think they can get all the Democrats. But at least on one issue, minimum wage, it appears there are some Democrats who are not on board with the $15 minimum wage that a lot of Democrats want. But Kristen Sinema, who is a Democrat from Arizona, she's more to the middle compared to her colleagues on the left. She says $15 is a no-go. $15 minimum wage would hurt a lot of small businesses, is what she says. And what's interesting right now is there's a debate about whether it's even legal to include it in what's known as reconciliation. I don't want to get in the weeds of it, but Bernie Sanders believes that the parliamentarian of the Senate will approve of putting a $15 minimum wage through reconciliation. And the way that Democrats want to get the stimulus bill is through reconciliation. They want to use it to get around the 60-vote minimum threshold. And the parliamentarian is looking into whether that's allowed because they say the only way you can use reconciliation is if it's something that directly is fiscally involved um, with the, you know, the outflows of the budget that Congress approves. Do you think the parliamentarian is going to approve this? And, and if so, what will this do to the economy? Well, first of all, on the uh, you, you just mentioned the Ariz uh, senator from Arizona uh, not, not, not supporting it. So if, if you don't get the 50 Democrat votes or 51 votes of, with Kamala Harris uh, uh, voting in, in unison, it won't really matter. Uh, not only that, Carrie, most states have already increased their, their, their minimum wage rates to a high level. So I'm not exactly sure how much extra benefit you get on the federal side. What I'd be worried about is you'd essentially price out uh, those people, like teenagers uh, who, who are working at less than a $15 minimum wage rate, you basically price them out of the market. Also in, in the restaurant industry, which has been 
the beleaguered sector has been hit so hard with coronavirus. When you increase their pay, that multiplies then up the chain of, uh, of command, if you will, at restaurants and makes them. Mm. And they're already, they've already been hit so hard. Yeah. All right, Joe Lavorna, stay with us. We'll be right back. We're gonna take a quick break. More with Joe Lavorna. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Hey there, good morning and welcome back to Just the News AM. I'm Carrie Sheffield and glad that you're with us. Joined again by Joe Lavorna, the former White House chief economist for President Trump. Hey there, Joe. Hi, Carrie. So let's talk about this plan from the Democrats on immigration. You have Nancy Pelosi out there saying that she would love to get some Republicans on board. Reportedly, this plan would be a plan that would give a pathway to citizenship for 8 million illegal immigrants. What would this do to the economy, this immigration bill? The, uh, the, what I would like to see, I don't know the exact specifics of this bill. I mean, it's still coming together. But what I would like to see is a pathway for legal, skilled immigration. Uh, that would be great for, uh, for this economy, but it's got to be legal and you want skilled workers. If you just have a program that essentially lets in anybody who wants to come in, what you're going to wind up doing, Carrie, is depressing wages and really hurting the lower skilled people right now on the bottom of the, uh, of the income rung. More supply means you're gonna depress wage rates. So I think it needs to be done right. Unfortunately, this issue has become very, very politicized. And if I recall correctly, I believe that President Trump had put something forward regarding DACA. I don't know if it was early last year or the year before, uh, but unfortunately the politics were such that the Democrats weren't on board with it. So an immigration makes sense, economists agree with it, but it has to be skilled immigration, it's gotta be legal immigration, and the economy would ultimately benefit. The programs we've seen thus far, the bills put forward, don't appear to do that. Right, they, they, it's for people who came in this country illegally, broke the laws, came in just because they wanted to come in, and essentially a lot of people, conservatives, say this is rewarding illegal behavior and that it has nothing to do with skill, it has nothing to do with what you would be adding to the economy, it's just about whether or not you want to be here. And when you're looking at how Europe does things and Canada does things with their immigration policy, they look a lot more like what you're describing, where it's based on skill instead of your desire to come into the country and break laws. Why is it that Europe and Canada, they can get away with this, but here in America, if you say this, then you're somehow racist, you're xenophobic, you're anti-immigrant. Yeah, that's a very good question, Carrie. I don't really know the answer to that. I try to look at it from a policy perspective, and there are certainly some great examples of better approaches, such as in Canada and Europe, uh, no question about it. But unfortunately, as you know, the politics and the divisiveness sometimes gets in the way, and, and it's my guess is to be a bit of a cynic is probably just you're trying to appeal to certain voting blocks um, and, and has less to do with what good policy is, but more about who, who can we get on our side to push something through so as to remain in power, regardless of who it is, Republicans or Democrats. So I, again, I want, I want good policies. I believe in free market policies. And certainly we have a skills shortage in the U.S. So if we can do things to bring more skilled workers in, that's great policy.
Well, you're absolutely right, because they want to have those votes and have them vote a certain direction, and we know what direction that is. Over to the left, my left. Uh, but let's talk about the, uh, you said the, the wages being suppressed. If you have a lot of unskilled workers who came in illegally and now they're here, what does that do to low-skilled Americans, uh, in particular, for example, African Americans? Are they going to be hurt by a bill like this? Any, any low-skilled worker would be hurt by a bill because you've got people coming into the workforce that are willing to essentially accept a lower wage rate because there's simply more people for a certain available amount of jobs. And that would really hurt uh, all different races and income groups. In fact, uh, the last year for which we have data, the 2019 census report, showed record increase in wage rates for blacks, for Hispanics, for Asian Americans, and most of the benefits accrued following the 2017 tax cuts to the lower income workers, the bottom bottom quarter, bottom third. That was, that was a great result. And if you bring in a lot of excess labor, you're going to depress those wage rates, especially if we wind up reversing the decline in corporate tax rates, which I'd argue was the real benefit to those people who essentially got the, the fruits of those significantly lower corporate tax rates, which, by the way, put U.S. tax rates in line with the other industrialized countries, such as those in Europe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if you're paying less in taxes, you can pay more in salary to your workers. Let's talk about the OMB, because it appears that Neera Tandon might have her nomination under fire. So she's Biden's pick to run his budget office, the Office of Management and Budget. And Democrat uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia said last week that he's not going to support her. And we just got the news that the Republican Senator Collins, Susan Collins from Maine, says that she is going to withdraw her support does this mean her nomination is toast? <laughs> I, uh, well, I, I, you're looking at two, uh, two senators that tend to be moderate on, on each side of the aisle. So that, that, that probably speaks volumes in terms of the likelihood. So I guess uh, from, a, from, from a betting perspective, you'd probably say the odds certainly have declined. But I, I'm not in a position to say whether she'll get confirmed or not. Mm. But when, when you were at the White House, how much did you work with the OMB? Walk us through, why is this role important? Why should people care? Because a lot of people are saying, okay, Neera Tandon has very close ties with Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klein. And the fact that she would be thrown, you know, out, that she wouldn't be approved, would be kind of a, uh, you know, a rejection of, of Ron Klain, and this would be a big rejection for Biden. How much of a loss would it be for Biden? Would it be really a lot of egg on his face? How important is the OMB role? The OMB role, I worked with very closely, and the people that were there, uh, Russ Walkbrand, when I was there, did an outstanding job, and uh, it's a very important organization. I can't say if, she, if, if uh, she's not confirmed what that looks like in terms of the administration and whether it looks bad. I mean, you really just want uh, the best possible people there. And also you want, uh, to the extent possible, someone that's got bipartisan support uh, because they're going to be working so closely with, with Congress and legislative issues and scoring and things of that sort. So we'll see what happens. But I don't, I don't really care. You want to get into like how bad it looks, whether whether uh, she's confirmed or not, or, or whether it's maybe somebody else better along that comes along, I don't know. Well, she's very polarizing. I mean, Susan Collins also is upset that she deleted over a thousand of her tweets. She's trying to scrub herself, make herself more presentable, and she said, "This is a big problem. If you believe in government transparency, uh, how are you going to go back if you're trying to vet her and and see what she said?" But 
it's all gone. But uh, speaking of transparency, we reported that there was the another nominee for Biden. She didn't disclose some income that she got in casinos. So she's been named uh, the pick for Biden for interior secretary, and she failed to disclose on her ethics reports uh, $16,000 in casino salary. This was up to a third of her income in 2018. How often do you see this? I mean, you work, uh, you know, you've worked in finance, and, and there are a lot of people who go from business to work in government. Is this pretty common, or is this something that Republicans should really say, wow, this is just, you know, more examples of Biden hiding and obfuscating here with this administration? Well, here's what I could tell you. Your viewers might, may or may not find interesting. The amount of detail that one has to fill out uh, before, you know, once you join is, is extraordinary, Carrie. I mean, it was, I, there, there were the stocks and, and mutual funds, ETFs, excuse me, that I had to divest. Uh, everything go, is with a fine tooth comb. I mean, I can't even tell you how difficult it is. It's sort of like going to the dentist and, and drilling without Novocaine. I mean, it is painful process. I had to document every country I'd been to, why I was there for business. I mean, it is an extraordinary extraordinarily detailed report, financial disclosures. If, if, when I was in the White House, if you wanted to look, all my financials were publicly available. I had to disclose everything down to the penny. I mean, this took days to do. It's not because I'm this extraordinarily unique, wealthy person. It's just you have to, as you live, you have to disclose everything. It's really detailed and you can't make any mistakes. You really can't find it. It's really complicated. Well, uh, we're glad you went through it. All right, we're gonna take a break. We'll be right back. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey there, good morning, and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, and glad that you're with us. Well, I love to get viewer feedback. I put a question out there, and you guys always respond. Here's what you had to say today. I asked about the, well, I put a tweet out about the Democrats' use of the Fauci image in a fundraising pitch, and it sparked a lot of questions. So the Democrats, the, Demo the DCCC, the House fundraising arm, they used Fauci for one of their fundraising arms. And a former federal election commissioner said that if Fauci is involved in this partisan fundraising effort, he is violating the federal law and federal ethics guidelines, including the Hatch Act. Well, folks had a lot to say about this. SLK says the laws don't pertain to them, remember? Also, Crazy for Truth says... Since when do Democrats care about law and ethics? And I will point out that these Hatch Act questions are something that were asked over and over by media and Democrats when Trump was in office, but surprisingly, or not surprisingly, it's crickets this time. Let's talk about another tweet. This is from Florida Moxie, and she says, what happens next? Nothing. Well, we hope that's not the case, and we are going to be keeping people accountable. And please let us know what you see. What's Fauci up to? Or as our friend last week likes to call him, Dr. Falsi? What do you think? 
I'm at Twitter at Carrie Sheffield. I uh, put a tweet out today about the Democrat stimulus plan and how it's going to affect the economy. But joining me now is Cherie Murray. She's executive director of Unite the Fight Pack up in New York City. There's a lot going on in New York, and we're going to break it all down. Hey there, Cherie. Hey, Carrie. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Thank you for having me. Good to have you. So let's talk about Cuomo. So we know that the FBI is investigating him and his administration and his handling of nursing home deaths. The DOJ is looking into this, and a spokesman says for Cuomo says that they are cooperating with the DOJ. So good for them for cooperating. We'll just see how actually cooperative it is in substance. But tell us, what's the sense there in New York? You're there in New York City. Are people wanting to get him removed? How likely is this? Absolutely. I think you hear calls from both sides of the aisle. Actually, for the first time that we've seen in a while in New York, you have bipartisan lawmakers coming together, calling for the governor to be removed. I mean, what he did with the ordinance on March 25th really put in jeopardy our seniors, and he should be held accountable. I'm glad to see uh, Assembly members Kim and Biagi uh, today. They'll be introducing legislation to strip the governor of his executive powers. Right. You're exactly right. I mean, we had a headline from the New York Post looking at this, that the New York State Assembly is looking to impeach him, possibly. And this is because of an attorney general, state attorney general report from Letitia James, who said that the state undercounted the coronavirus death toll in nursing homes by more than 50 percent. That's a huge number. And in response, Governor Cuomo says, hey, it doesn't matter where they died. If they died in a hospital or nursing home, at the end of the day, they're dead. Uh, just the, that sound bite to hear him say that just so crass, so cold for a lot of people's ears. But in terms of impeachment, this is Republicans who are pushing this. Do you actually think any Democrats in the legislature specifically will get on board? Yes, absolutely. As I just alluded to, you have Assembly members Ron Kim and, excuse me, you have Albany legislators Ron Kim and Alexandria Biagi. Oh, are they Democrats? Yeah, they are. Oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, Democrats. Yeah, and so the bipartisan effort is not just coming from the Republican side, it's coming from both sides of the aisle. And we look forward to that um, legislation being introduced today, actually. So we're going to keep our eyes on it. We're going to keep our, our ears to see what makes of this horrific executive order. I mean, I was impacted when I ran. Uh, our kids are actually being impacted right now because the governor refuses to lift the cap on charter schools. So not only is, did he have his you know, uh, foot on the neck of our seniors, unfortunately, and God rest, you know, their souls. But right now he's keeping our children back with not allowing um, more charter schools to be opened in the state of New York. I'm old enough to remember there was a time when Cuomo was the one who was pushing back on de Blasio in support of charter schools, but those days seem to be long gone. What about the recall effort? Is there any, what's the legal means? Is there any push to recall? Is that something New York has? Because in California, it looks very likely that they're going to get the signatures to have a recall vote for Gavin Newsom. Well, I know our state chairman, Nick Langworthy, uh, has been holding a series of press conferences 
calling for the governor to step down. So we're, you know, seeing what the procedures are that are going to be put forward. We're going to see the legislation that's handed down now. I know the governor has to get his executive uh, powers issued, reissued every 30 days. So that's vastly approaching as well. There are different options on the table, including a recall. We see what's happening right now in California with Gavin Newsom and how the constituents have garnered over 1.5 million votes to have that be on the ballot. So yeah, Sheree, would you would you help push for a recall effort? Are you are you saying here on this program, or is is there an actual? effort to actually get him recalled, or is it just impeachment at this point? Well, there's a lot of conversation. I think that we all need to get together and see what the best options are. But I think the first step is what's going to happen today with the introduction of the legislation to remove his executive powers. I think that would be one of the very first steps that needs to be taken. And he does need to resign and resign and or be removed from office. I mean, the governor has a long history of deceit going back from the business uh, business plan program that he had for New York. Then we fast forward to the, uh, the Buffalo Bills uh, upstate and the deceit that came around that. We have the right and left to him, Dean Skelos and Sheldon Silver, who ended up in jail. And so now we fast forward to 2021, where we have another controversy where the governor and his administration is trying to cover up the actual facts of what happened. And so I think he needs to be held accountable. I'm calling for him to be held accountable on your show today. And in fact, after three terms, he does not need to serve another term. One last point, Carrie, we have um, rumored to be running against him for governor. We have um, Zeldin out in upstate, and we also have former gubernatorial candidate Mark Malinaro, who did a tremendous job holding the count, uh, the governor accountable in that election cycle. Now, downstate New York, the five boroughs is what delivered for Governor Cuomo when Mark Malinaro picked up the majority of the upstate boroughs. Believe it or not, New York can be a purple state if we have the Republican leadership here penetrate the five boroughs, mainly Queens, Brooklyn, the Bronx, and Manhattan. We know Staten Island votes Republican. So we just need that extra stimulation, that revitalization downstate New York to bring home a win for our gubernatorial candidate in 2022. Mm. We also know that Joe Biden has refused, or his spokeswoman refused to say whether or not he, she still, and he still believes that the gold standard of governors in this is Governor Cuomo. We've got a headline of that on justthenews.com. Because, you know, also he, he deserved an Emmy, apparently, from his TV performance. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a quick break, uh, but we'll be back more with Sheree Murray, Executive Director of Unite the Fight Pack. Stay tuned. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Hey there, good morning. Welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield, back again with Sheree Murray, the executive director of Unite the Fight PAC, a Republican in New York, one of those stalwart souls up in New York City. And we're talking about Andrew Cuomo and his political future. Now, on the flip side uh, to what we were talking about before, there was an op-ed in the New York Daily News by a guy named Bradley Tusk. And Bradley Tusk has been a campaign manager for Bloomberg successfully, who was the mayor of New York City, and he also worked for Chuck Schumer. So he's plugged in there in New York politics. He says that the controversy over the Cuomo administration's reporting of COVID-related nursing home deaths is certainly ugly, but it's probably not politically fatal. To all of the political operatives out there whispering about Cuomo's electoral vulnerability next year as he seeks a fourth term, slow down. It's unlikely to happen. And you mentioned a few different challengers on the Republican side. Do you think he would ever actually get a primary challenger? I mean, because this guy, he's from a very powerful political family. How likely is it that he would actually hold on to power? Because this guy is saying, and this guy, he knows New York politics also. He's saying Cuomo, he, he's a fighter. He's going to stay there. Well, Carrie, I think it's so important that our chairman, state chairman Nick Langworthy, make the inroads in downstate New York. We have the five boroughs that delivered the gubernatorial win to Governor Cuomo when he ran against Mark Molinaro in the last race. And so Mark Molinaro did very well upstate New York, which happens to be more of a purple district. So we need to get um, retooled, revitalized, as the chairman likes to say, and come on down to downstate New York. I'd be happy to host them in Queens, where we can make inroads in communities that don't see the Republican Party. And I think that's the way that we actually win, along with uh, you know legislation that calls for term limits. I, the entire Albany structure uh, does not have term limits. So you have the governor on down to the Senate and the assembly members who are lifers for the most part. And so I think once you start to address the real loopholes that continue to keep these people in power, they'll continue to stay in power. Four terms is unheard of. Mm. Well, Cuomo had this to say about the controversy on the nursing homes. Pretty gutsy of him to say this. He says, it's a lie to say any numbers were inaccurate. What's your response to that? My response, Carrie, is Cuomo lied and people died. And on another program, we had Assembly Member uh, Mike Lawler, who said the very same thing. He's lying. And unfortunately, our seniors and their families suffered the consequences by underreporting the numbers. He handcuffed the legislator in New York to deliver reforms and, and uh, best practices. Uh, he handcuffed the rest of American legislators, because we would have seen the example of what was happening and know that that wasn't a good precedent. And so his decisions to cover up these numbers actually hurt the rest of America. And for that, he should be held accountable. There is a lot of deceit in Albany. And I'm glad that the Attorney General, Letitia James, came forward with her report. Otherwise, we would not have known what was happening, and the governor probably would have been on his way to an Oscar. Mm. Well, and and even behind, before the numbers, it's the decisions that led to the numbers, decisions about putting infected people 
in these high transmission areas. That seems to be the huge policy decision that he made, and he's going to have to answer for that. Let's talk about something here in Washington, and it's something Joe Biden did that a lot of people are saying will hurt black Americans in particular, also Latino Americans, and just anybody who is coming up from working class and wanting to work up to a better life. And what he did was Joe Biden has repealed a Trump executive order that promoted apprenticeship programs. And so this is letting the industries themselves lead these apprenticeship programs. And President Trump signed the order in 2017. And he said at the time, this was to expand apprenticeships in America. And he said that the expansion of these programs would help Americans to obtain relevant skills and high paying jobs. He also argued that the federally funded education and workforce development programs are not effectively serving American workers. He's saying we should have more private sector involvement. And Joe Biden is saying no. What's your response to this? Well, it's been typical since day one. You know, the Biden administration uh, gives the appearance that they want to keep us on lockdown. And so my perception is the Democratic Party wants to offer Americans a handout versus a hand up. And that goes along the vein of that article that you just uh, alluded to, Carrie. It's all about keeping us dependent on the government and not self-sustained and self-sufficient. And I think that's the message that I take away from that. Uh, President um, Biden has issued an alarming amount of executive orders. And I'm concerned about the dictatorship for which he's been administering as our current president. Um, another uh, executive order that I'm personally concerned about is the one for education that President Trump signed into law as well. And as a mom who has to, you know, be here with her kids and remote learning and working, uh, we see that working moms have been having a, a, um, a setback in the workforce. And so the education funding, all of the executive orders that are uh, taking back the policies that were putting America first will have a significant impact, not just on us, but our kids' future as well. Mm, and especially those who are the most vulnerable. We saw their wages in the lower end of the income pool going up under President Trump. All right, Tree Marie, stay with us. We'll be right back. She's with the Unite the Fight Pack. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Breaking news from Real America's Voice. Hey there, welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield. We just heard some breaking news. Politico is reporting that the Supreme Court, the U.S. Federal Supreme Court, has cleared the way for prosecutors in New York City to receive eight years of former President Donald Trump's tax returns and other financial records as part of an ongoing investigation into possible tax insurance and bank fraud in the Trump business empire. Now, this decision by the high court, for, uh, it rejects a request from the Trump team that had requested a stay 
of a grand jury subpoena to advance the criminal probe. Now, this probe is led by Manhattan District Attorney Cy Vance Jr., and this is something that Cy Vance Jr. had been pursuing and the Trump team had been fighting vigorously. The justices themselves issued no explanation for the denial, and no member of the court publicly noted any dissent. Now, former President Trump is not on Twitter, but we expect to get a statement about this. I expect he'll have a lot of strong feelings about this. He's been fighting having to release his tax returns for quite some time because he said he's under an audit. We'll see what sort of argument he's able to make. Uh, it seems that the high court, there's not really much else you can go once you've hit that point. But Cherie Murray is joining me again. She's executive director of Unite the Fight PAC. Cherie, what does this mean for the president, former President Trump at this point? This is uh, just ridiculous. He's been harassed from the time he came down the escalator. And this is just another just political ploy. Cy Vance didn't even go after Harvey Weinstein, but he's going after the former president. That tells you a lot about where their priorities are. Uh, president Trump delivered for the American people. I'm proud to call him my president. And I'm happy that my kids get to know about the results that he delivered for Americans. And so this, again, is just harassment. I hope that the president digs his heels in and it really comes out of this one uh, being vindicated with all of the muddy uh, waters that they've casted over his. Sure. But what would that look like? What would digging your heels look like? Because this is the Supreme Court you're talking about. Well, he's up to speak at CPAC, right? So hopefully we can hear more about, you know, his uh, feedback on that. And I, I welcome his press releases that he issues from the office, from the 45th office. So I'll stand by. I don't want to get in front of the former president as to what his remarks may be. But my personal opinion is just this is just harassment. He's been harassed from the time he was president. I mean, twice impeached and he won. So We'll see where this goes, and it's just a long list of things that the Democrats have used to try to taint his tenure. Well, and, and certainly that's something, it's, this is certainly not the first investigation that we've seen over and over, and we've seen him fight off a, a lot of challenges in the past. You're absolutely right. Uh, I want to turn to a different topic, and that is here in Virginia. The uh, there's They're working and considering what they're calling a cultural competency evaluation and black history training for teachers. And this concept is, uh, you know, this cultural competence, uh, it's an idea that's been gaining currency in many major industries and institutions in recent years. The American Psychological Association states that the term is loosely defined as the ability to understand, appreciate, and interact with people from cultures or belief systems different from one's own, which they claim has been a key aspect of psychological thinking and practice for some 50 years. What's your read on this, this mandate for black history training and for cultural competency? I think it's further conditioning. I think we need to have free thinkers. I think we should not erase our history. It's so important for our next generation to know where we come from. Uh, you know, one of the things that really propelled me into uh, 
registering as a Republican was learning about our American history and how the Republican Party was started as an anti-slavery movement. I learned about our founding fathers like Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells and learned how they were the abolitionists. And as we fast forward, even to the early 60s and the civil rights uh, movement with Martin Luther King and how he aligned himself with the Republican Party. The Republican Party has always been champions against slavery. And I don't see why the indoctrination in our school system is happening when all we need to do is really refer to the history books. It's all there. Well, it seems like it's just a certain type of history that they want to completely rewrite the history books. And you're absolutely right. What type of history are you looking at? Are you telling the full scope of uh, white supremacy and the KKK and the fact that that was led by Democrats. Um, I, I have a sneaky suspicion that won't be in, in the Democrat curriculum um, here in Virginia. And, and the, the, the governor here, who's a Democrat who dressed up in, in blackface uh, and, uh, you know, he's still in office. But uh, let's talk about also in the Bronx, uh, in your neck of the woods. I know you're in Queens, but nearby up in the Bronx, there's a teacher who says that she was fired because she refused to perform a Wakanda Forever salute. That's, uh, you know, from the movie Black Panther. And Rafaela Espinela, she identifies as Afro-Latina, and when she refused to take part, she was admonished and told that it was inappropriate for her not to participate, according to a Manhattan Supreme Court lawsuit lodged against New York City's Department of Education. Real quick, 20 seconds, what's your response to this? Let's cancel cancel culture. I think it's pretty simple. Um, people are entitled to their opinions and their beliefs, their moral beliefs. And you can't um, ask someone to compromise. It, it, when you look at religion, it's the same thing. You can't compromise. So just respect each other's opinion, respect each other's position, and let's try to live together in this country. America is a beautiful country, and we need to keep reminding ourselves and our children of that All fact. right. Thank you, Cherie. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey there, good morning and welcome back to Just the News AM. I am Carrie Sheffield and so glad that you're with us. Well, our thoughts and our prayers are with the people who are still without power. Some people are still without running water. They're having to boil water uh, throughout the country, throughout the Midwest, but especially in Texas. And I want to share a few ideas that you can get involved and help with what's happening. So the North Texas Food Bank is serving the people of Dallas, and you can donate right now, and you'll get a three times match. There's the Leslie Family Foundation, and it's offering a tripling of every gift you give up to $85,000 very generous opportunity there. Also in Houston, the Houston Food Bank, you can host your own virtual fund drive. And what that is, is that you can go in and you can create a fundraiser 
have your own friends, family come together online and you can raise money for this cause because the folks in Houston are suffering. They need food, they need shelter, they need warmth, they need water. You can also just give, if you don't have the ability to do a fundraiser, you can do a one-time gift or you can just give a one-off or you can continue to give. Uh, if you give $50, you're providing 150 meals to people. If you give $100, you're providing 300 meals. 250 will give 750 meals. So a little money goes a long way. So, uh, you know, this is a, a blessed country. We are blessed. Uh, if you have resources to give, I would encourage all of you. Uh, and thank you for watching. Again, please uh, keep your thoughts and prayers on the folks who are suffering at this point in our very own country. We're with them. All right, that does it for us here at Just the News, and we'll be here tomorrow.